Blog Talk Radio. I stroll through the pictures What I've left behind You want to I'm locked up in memories They all intertwine The memories living In my mind I know tomorrow Cause that dawn will come You will never know what you have done Well, good evening, everyone, and welcome to the NASCA Stop Child Abuse Now, also known as SCAN, Log Talk Radio Show. NASCA also stands for the National Association of Adult Survivors of Child Abuse. And my name is Kim Lakin. I'm your host this evening, and on my host team this okay. evening is Penelope. Welcome. We're glad you're here with us, Penelope. Thank you. And um, we are on scan number 3296 tonight. We would love for you to be a part of our panel if you have any questions or even just call in and support our our special guest this evening, you can do that by calling 646-595-2118. And we have a single purpose here at NASCA, and that is to address issues that are related to childhood abuse and trauma, including sexual assault, violent or physical abuse, abuse, emotional traumas, and neglect, and we do so with two goals. One, by educating the public especially as it's related to helping society get over its taboo of discussing childhood sexual abuse, also known as CSA, presenting facts showing child abuse to be a pandemic, worldwide problem that affects everyone, and two, by offering hope and healing through numerous paths, providing many services to adult survivors of child abuse, and information for anyone interested in the many issues involving prevention, intervention, and recovery. So again, we are on scan number 3296 tonight, and if you would like to be a part of our panel, we'd love to have you. That's 646-595-2118, and Penelope will meet you on the back line and see if you have a question or if you're just calling in to listen. So um, you can access this, this show just within a few minutes of us being off the air and you can go onto nasca.org and search that. So this evening I'm excited to introduce our special guests. They are Dale and Faith Ingram, Ingram, um, and they're returning from NASCA. They're returning family members. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm not getting off to a very good start with that. <laughs> but Dale and Faith Ingraham are returning NASCA members from Addison, New York, 
Dale is a pastor who began his ministry in 1983. And in 2020, Dale began to devote himself fully to the ministry of Speaking Truth in Love, which is a 501c3 nonprofit ministry, along with his partner, Faith, who is a survivor of child abuse and child sexual abuse and his wife of 40 years. He is a speaker, trainer, author, and strong advocate for victims and survivors of abuse. Working together, they provide abuse prevention and response training to organizations, families, individuals, and churches. They create safe places for growing and healing at conferences and at speaking engagements as well. Printed materials, private consultation, and life coaching. In this book, Speaking Truth in Love, Dale Ingraham addresses the topic of sexual abuse in a way that examines hard areas while maintaining sensitivity for those who fear that this issue is too difficult for them to examine. The memoir, like recounting of Dale and Faith's own journey to understand, understanding is woven throughout the various chapters of the book. From Faith's first revolution, revelation to Dale that she had suffered incest at the hands of her pastor father, to Dale's excommunication of his father-in-law in the church that he himself had pastored. Through the nonprofit, they express a desire that no one needs to experience being left without hope and healing or be damaged by physical, emotional, or spiritual or mental abuse. The dynamics of our mission, their mission is to provide quality resources and materials to empower, encourage, and equip the broken to heal. Simply put, they build healthy men, women, and children. I love that. And um, I'm just so honored to bring Dale and Faith on with us this evening. And I've known them for a few years, so I am always excited to hear what is new in your world and how you are just reaching people. So thank you for being on this evening, Dale and Faith. Thank, thank you. Thank you for having us. Yeah, well, we are always honored to have you guys on. We love you. Love you to be on. So, thank you. you know, how it kind of goes, how it goes with um, just wherever you guys want to start. You know, there's people that may have heard your story before, but I think for sure Philip hasn't and Penelope hasn't either. So if you want to start kind of at the beginning and how you um, – just wherever you want to start. That's what I'm going to leave it up to you, and I will just turn it over to you, and then, as you know, we might pop in and ask you some questions here and there, but it's your show, so we're going to just give it to you. Sound good? Did you have anything to say before we get started? <laughs> I think we're going to start with Faith sharing her story. I think that's a good place to start, and then we'll work into how the Lord kind of led us into this ministry. So I I grew up I grew up in a pastor's home. I have eight brothers. I'm the sixth of nine children, and I accepted Christ as my Savior when I was five, and my dad actually led me to the Lord. And he began to sexually abuse me when I was around nine years old. And that abuse continued 
throughout um, my childhood until I was 18. And I never told anyone for many different reasons. Um, for one, the, my abuser was someone who was supposed to protect me, and he violated that trust. And because of that, I didn't know who to trust. Um, would the people in the church believe me if I told somebody there? And my, I saw my mother as a victim as well. Um, I knew she cared about me, but she, my dad was emotionally abusive to my mom, um, not physically, but very emotionally and mentally abusive. Um, and so there was, you know, the dynamics of an abuser. It's not one person in the family that's being abused. It's usually everyone in the family is being abused in different ways and people are being isolated or pit against each other. Um, I was the most isolated because I was the only girl. I had my own room, which also gave him more access to me without anybody knowing um, because I had my own room. So anyway, I just kept quiet. I died emotionally. That was my survival um, mechanism that I used. I died emotionally. I wasn't. I wasn't um, depressed or suicidal or angry or bitter, but I wasn't. Um, I didn't have any of the happy emotions either. I didn't have anticipation, excitement. Um, all of those things either. And because when I did, when we did get married, Dale and I, I did tell him before we were married that I had been abused, but I didn't go into any detail. And I thought I was healed because I didn't have all of the negative emotions. Um, I was very shut down, though. And then when my my dad abused my niece in 2006. And that's kind of what shook me awake to the fact that because nobody ever dealt with my abuse from my dad, my dad had continued on to have more and more victims because people didn't speak up. People didn't confront him. Um, and I think sometimes we think that just by being quiet, we're um, protecting ourselves and we're being loving and we're being forgiving, but basically we're enabling um, abusers to continue to abuse more and more victims. And I guess I didn't realize my being quiet had enabled him to continue for people to even trust him around children and different things um, because they didn't know of my abuse. Yeah, and one of the things that Faith and I talked about in, in 2006 when all this happened with Faith's niece, Faith and I were married in 1984, and 
from 1984 to 2006, we maintained a fairly normal relationship, and I, I put that in quotes, with base mom and dad. Um, we didn't let the kids go and spend the night at their house. I mean, we, we would... We thought at the time we were being careful, but the reality is that nobody's safe around an offender. Um, and I think with, like with Face Dad, I, I mean, looking back now, both Face Mom and Dad um, have passed away, but I don't think anyone was safe around her dad. Um, and what happened was in 2000, um Face Dad actually put my name in the church in Campbell, New York. And we got the church, and so Face Mom and Dad, he had, Face Dad had spoken at this church before, and um, he knew the people, they knew him, so he put my name in. And we got the church in 2000. Face Mom and Dad, in a year or so, they came and joined the church. And at that point, I was around him every week. And it didn't take long to realize that he definitely had something seriously wrong. I think I had convinced myself that Faith was the only victim and that he had repented. We knew, I tell people I was 95% ignorant. I knew what abuse was. I had no clue how prevalent it was, you know, that, that, that offenders don't just have one victim. I mean, they have in many cases hundreds of victims. And, but when I was around him every week, I kept telling Faith, I know he's not repentant because I can just tell by the things he says and how he interacts with people. And then I'm trying to figure out what do we do with him. And then in 2006, in the fall, we found out that he had molested one of his son's foster daughters. And so that's that's when God shook us awake and we got together with um face brother and his wife and um we went and confronted her dad i i faith didn't go i went but that's when i sat down with faith the night we were going over with two of face brothers to confront her dad i said i need to know more about the abuse because i'm going to confront him with what he did to you and and so that's when i found out the duration um, how long he had abused her, that it was rape and molestation. Um, and Dad was very unrepentant. Um, when we walked in the door with these two brothers, I walked in the door. He was sitting on the couch with his a Bible open on the couch and his left hand on the Bible. And he didn't even let us get our coats off, and he was talking about everything God was teaching him and just how much he was learning from the Bible, and he just went on and on. So I finally stopped him and told him, you know, we each had some things to say and he needed to listen. And so I started, and then these two brothers both went. We knew at this point he had multiple victims. Uh, we were finding this stuff out quite rapidly at this point. And Dad was unrepentant. You know, it was everybody else's fault. Um but I told him that night, I said, you know, you need to make a full confession. You've got to go back to every victim. You've got to go back to their husbands. You've got to, you've got to seek restitution and forgiveness, and you've got to get things made right. I said, if you do that, you know, I will stay with you through this process. But 
but of course Dad didn't do that, and um, we completely broke off our relationship with him at that point. So it was a, it's a long journey. Um, I did a lot of things wrong uh, from 1984 to 2006, and, and largely because we had, I mean, zero teaching in the church, in the Christian school I graduated from, in Bible college. Faith and I both graduated from the same Bible college. I mean, literally zero teaching on sexual abuse and domestic violence. The terms were not even used, which is shocking, but we had a night class at Bible college or an evening class. Faith and I took it together called Ethical Issues of the Day. And they never once in that class mentioned childhood sexual abuse and domestic violence. They talked about stuff like, is it, is it, is it okay, is it a sin to buy a lottery ticket? Is it a sin to gamble? I mean, they talk about this peripheral stuff, but the stuff that's eating away at our churches and our families, they're like a cancer, they don't even bring it up. And so, I, I, I mean, things have changed somewhat. There's a much greater awareness uh, with the public Internet, and there's a ton of ministries and, and the work that you guys do. Um, a lot of people are hearing teaching about abuse. But I think in our churches, we're still lagging far behind. I know some churches are beginning to address the issues, but there's just a ton of churches, not only that don't address the issues of sexual abuse, domestic violence, but in so many cases, especially with the domestic violence end, what they're teaching in their churches and how they teach out of Ephesians 5 and some of these other passages actually sets the stage for domestic violence in um, the disrespecting of the wife and even the children in the family unit. Um, so there's so much more work that has to be done. And I would say with the ministry that we started the early stages talking about in 2007, we did our first conference in 2008. Um, we want to go into churches, ideally on a Sunday morning when everybody's there. And we like to take, we come from the angle of taking the Bible, taking God's word, and looking at what God has to say about abuse, and and really laying a biblical foundation for addressing both childhood sexual abuse, as well as domestic violence. We also spend a lot of Thank time. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Right. Hey, what so I was just going to say, one of the other things that we really try to do is is minister to abuse survivors and sometimes it's phone calls, sometimes it's text messages, sometimes it's interaction on social media. Um, but our heart is very much there because of, you know, face story. And you meet, I mean, abuse survivors are amazing in so many ways. Um, your heart goes out to them when you hear. It's incredible what children go through, horrific stuff, and yet they're beautiful people. And they just need someone to love and care for them. And so, you know, that's a big part of the blessing for the ministry is interacting with abuse survivors. So it's, it's kind of a twofold ministry. We want to get into churches. We do speak at conferences. 
Uh, we get invitations. Sometimes we'll do our own conferences. Um, but getting into churches on Sunday mornings, especially when everybody's there and interacting and ministering to survivors, small groups, uh, is kind of the heart and soul of what we want to do. I love that. And, you know, I know that we've talked about this before, that that was really my heart, too, and I think that's, I find that it is really hard to get in and speak to churches as well unless they have something happen, which is so sad. I mean, we do need to get ahead of this. And and I know that you guys do amazing work, and I just appreciate all that you guys do for that. I was going to ask you, well, first of all, um, say thank you for sharing your story again. I know that it's not always easy to I keep going over it and over it and over it, but um, we just appreciate that you were willing to come on and, and share it with our listeners. Thanks. And I know that, yeah, well, yeah, thank you. And I know a lot of our listeners will be able to really connect with your story. Yeah. And right. um, so yeah, well, we appreciate you doing that. So, Dale, what do you think, my question is, what do you think um, you would tell husbands? So you said that during, you know, 1984 to 2006 and you guys were married and you knew about the abuse, but, um, you know, maybe it was just, okay, it's, it's under control or maybe it was just my wife and now he's under control. What would you say to husbands that, the wife has told, and they don't know what to do. And they're just kind of in that space as well of, okay, it must be okay because everything looks okay on the outside. What would you tell them? So it, it is interesting um, over the years as, as we meet people and they ask what we do, we share a little bit about the ministry, and I talk about faith story. It's amazing how many men respond immediately with, my wife went through that too. And and there is, I guess I would say the number one place to start, the first step, educating yourself or educating ourselves on, on trying to understand what abuse survivor goes through. Now, one of our presentations we did back in 2018, I did up a slide that on the slide it says victim's perspective and the offender's perspective. And I've got a a wall, a, a line or a wall between the victim and the offender, and I make the point that most people see abuse from the offender's perspective, not the victim's. And the illustration I use with that slide is the illustration of a, of a bullet wound. And the entry point to a bullet wound is usually very small. Um, in, in many cases, you literally could put a Band-Aid over the entry point to a bullet wound and, and conceal it. But what happens when the bullet enters the body, many of the bullets are made to break apart. And when they break apart, what they do is they they spread throughout the body and they do catastrophic damage, uh, massive internal injuries. Um, And and if the bullet does exit out of the body, 
I mean, it's so horrific you wouldn't even want to look at it. The entry point to the bullet wound is like the offender's perspective. I mean, you'll hear stupid stuff from the offender, things like, well, the abuse didn't last that long or, or it didn't last that long. It's not that big a deal. They'll get over it. Uh, they won't remember it. I mean, they have all these things. And you'll notice, and abuse survivors have probably heard all of these horrific things from pastors and church leaders and family members, not just from offenders, but they'll say things like, you know, forgive and forget, you know, move on with your life and get over it. You know, there's this whole list of things that get said to victims, and and when you're hearing those things, you know that they only see abuse from the offender's perspective. They have no clue the catastrophic damage, the real impact emotionally and physically and spiritually um, that the internal damage that takes place. So I would say for a husband whose wife has been abused, and, you know, they see, you know, the, like the obvious problems with intimacy and, and sometimes just how not good communication between the husband and wife and maybe anger and outbursts and difficulties and um, but they don't realize where it's coming from or what's happened so educating yourself is a really really good first step uh, becoming trauma informed that's a term that we're hearing more about um, we, we have I mean there's a ton of counselors out there that that they they're Christian counselors, but they're not trauma-informed. And a lot of times, you know, pastors, church leaders, Christian counselors, biblical counselors, um, they're trying to help abuse survivors out, but they don't know what they're dealing with. They haven't been trained. Um, and a lot of times they re-victimize the yeah. victim. Instead of helping them, they put more burdens on them. They they say, well, you're bitter or you're angry or you're unforgiving or you're unloving, when in fact they're just trying to, with the trauma that they've experienced, plus a lot of times they don't, they're trying to protect other potential victims. They want to protect the vulnerable, so they're telling their story to get this offender, um, they're expecting that he's going to be confronted and that he's not going to continue, be able to continue having access to victims. And instead, that the victim, they, they turn it around and make the victim the offender because the victim is saying something needs to be done and, they're, and people just want them to be quiet and pretend like nothing's happened and that everything's okay now. Yeah. Yeah, we see a lot of that. So I would say well, the husband, easy. I would... Yeah. For everybody else to think that, right? <laughs> everything's okay. Yeah. Go ahead. Yes. Go yeah, I would yeah, say, say to the husband, get educated and get help. Don't Don't try to muddle through it yourself. Um, so a trauma-informed counselor can be a big help. Um, 
it's amazing the difference in in healing. See, this is the thing that so many Christian marriages or marriages in general, you've got two people trying to have a healthy marriage, but in many cases they're broken. And, and a lot of times we forget, you know, statistically, the statistics say somewhere between one in three girls or one in four girls are raped or molested by the time they're 18. But also, a lot of the statistics are showing one in six boys raped or molested by the time they're 18. So so you've got, in many cases, you've got a husband and a wife, and that's just sexual abuse, by the way. If you throw in the emotional abuse, the verbal abuse, the physical abuse, the neglect, you know, we've got so many people in our churches trying to have healthy marriages, but you've got two broken people that haven't healed themselves individually because they haven't even begun to process their abuse, but they're trying to have a healthy marriage. And so they pray hard and, you know, they'll do Bible studies and they'll go to small groups. But you've really got to go back to the trauma in childhood in so many of these cases, and you've got to process that. You've got to find healing individually and in you know, be on a right relationship with God, and now you've got a foundation to to work from to build a healthy relationship with each other. And I think um, us who are on the call right now, um, even our, our other guest, Philip, who's on the call, I know is a believer, and I, you know, it it's made a difference for me but I really do relate to that whole um, trauma-informed counselor. And I think the older I've gotten and the more that I start to understand trauma, that how important that is. So I did have one counselor say to me one time, you know, why haven't you just completely cut that person out of your life? And, and I said, I don't, you know, I'm not sure you're understanding why I haven't completely cut that person out of, out of my life and, you know, giving these excuses. And then she looked at me and she said, so is it like a Stockholm Syndrome or something? And I, yeah, I mean, it, it really kind of is, especially if that person is somebody who is very, very close to you and is, you know, yeah. in your family. But I think, um, Faith, what would you say that, and then I'll, I'm going to open it up to my question as well, if that's okay. But um, first I wanted to ask you, what would you say, if now, at this point, knowing everything that you know, you had told Dale about this, and he said to you, I don't need to know because it will make me feel, you know, badly towards your dad. Or, you know, and there was kind of that a little bit of a wall because there is still this outside view of, this person is okay, and especially being a pastor, you know, I don't want to see that in your dad. I mean, right. how could you tell somebody that there's so much more to it? Kind of like Dale was just saying, I guess, just your perspective. Yeah. How it affected it's, you. It's kind of interesting because at that, at that point in my life, Dale did say, Dale said, I don't want anything to do with your dad. We need to just, we need to cut, cut our relationship with him. 
That's what he said when I told him before we were married. And I said, I came back with, we have to be loving and forgiving. And very similar to the Stockholm, you know, syndrome, it's that love-hate relationship that you have with somebody that's your that's your father. I mean, you love him because he's your father. You hate what he did. And at that point, I'm like, okay, what he did to me is in the past. I can just love and forgive and pretend and just go on. See, I still I still didn't see all of the trauma and all of the damage that had done been done to me because I was still in that denial stage. So it was actually Dale who was saying we need to do something, and I came back with, well, we need to love and forgive. And basically what we did was nothing. And it wasn't loving because we didn't confront him and we didn't make sure that he didn't have more victims. Um, but it was because that's that's what I had been taught all growing up in the church, that we need to be loving, forgiving people. And we're not taught how to, how to confront people that are abusive. How, how, do we, how do we respond to abuse when it happens? So I didn't even know how to respond, and I didn't know how I wanted Dale to respond. Um, I didn't know what was healthy and what was healing because it was never, ever talked about. And, and I would like to add one thing to that as well. So, so in the book that we wrote called Tear Down the Swall of Silence, um, so in that book where I'm talking about face dead and offenders in general, um, and, and we're talking about the issue of love and forgiveness and what that looks like, and I think that most professing Christians get it wrong. The most important thing for the offender is not keeping him out of jail. They're, they are on their way to hell, is the bottom line. And I'm convinced with face dad, I mean, only God knows for sure, but you look at what the scriptures indicate, we look at dad's life. This was a pattern his whole life. Um, as far back as we can find people that we've talked to and really put the pieces of the puzzle together. Um, he's not repentant or wasn't repentant till the day he died. Um, the most important thing is finding Jesus Christ and and where are you going to spend eternity? And so going back to this whole idea of what what does it mean to be loving to an offender, so so not keeping them out of jail, you you what I say in the book is there were people that surrounded Dad. When, when Faith finally came out with a story in 2006, there were some people from our church. Most of the people were super supportive of us. But there was a small group of people that surrounded Faith's dad, and they thought holding him accountable was terrible. And I say in the book that what they're doing is they're holding his hand on the way to hell. They think they're being loving. They're coddling him. They're protecting him from the consequences of not only the sin, 
but the violent crime, and we have to call this sexual abuse is a violent crime. It needs to be punished, and and abusers need to face the consequences. And, and we've got biblical examples. Manasseh from the Old Testament, one, he was a wicked, wicked person, but when he was finally put in a dungeon for a period of time, he finally repents and humbles himself before God, and, and that's really what Bastad needed. Um, he did finally plead guilty. He did not go to prison. He did no jail time. Um, he was a registered sex offender. But, you know, I have to wonder if he actually reached bottom and actually spent time in jail for what he had done, if if there would have been a maybe a a greater tendency on his part to truly examine his life, you know, and maybe find repentance there. But so the people, the enablers that surrounded him were doing him no favors by trying to protect him. And, yeah, I can see, especially how at such a young age and then living in that for so long, that you would want to kind of protect him because that's what everybody else is doing. So I definitely relate to that. Um, do you mind if yeah, I bring Penelope on? Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Yeah, go ahead with your question. Oh, go ahead, Faith. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt you. Go ahead. Oh, that's okay. I was just saying that when when somebody's starting their healing journey or even um, maybe they're even not starting their healing journey because they minimize what has happened to them because they've compartmentalized um, their life when when their abuser is within their own family. They have to do that just to survive um, what's going on. And, and they may not be ready um, to confront, and it's probably not safe for them to confront their offender in most cases. Um, They need somebody else to stand stand in that gap. And um, I know it wasn't till 2006 that I actually started healing because I still kept it buried. I knew it happened, but I never talked about it, and... Um, until you actually tell your story, that's when the the healing actually begins. Is is telling your story, and then realizing the impact that it's had on your life. So you've got a question. Another question. Yeah, I was going to see if Penelope um, had a question for you, and then maybe see if Philip did as well, if that was okay. Um, thank you, thank you, Kim and Dale and Faith. I just I've been taking so many notes um, on what you shared with us so far, and I've also been nodding my head because um, although my father wasn't a pastor, um, I was sexually abused by my biological father, and 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 you know Faith and 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 Dale just to I that is my experience, and I, that was the hardest thing I've ever had to do is actually say those words out loud. Um, it just takes a tremendous amount of courage. And so, you know, Faith, I, I, the first person I told was someone that I completely 
trust that I'd never been able to completely trust another person in my entire life because I grew up in abuse. And so I have to say, Dale, you, you obviously presented yourself um, as a very young man to, you know, faith as someone that she could trust to, to have that level of trust to tell um, about that, you know, heinous crime um, from one's biological father. And again, I've, I've experienced that. And, um, and I just say that's um, an amazing gift that you can give to somebody to be that person um, that someone can completely trust with that information. Um, my question was, um, when I was first listening, was to Faith about, I know, Dale, that you had confronted her father, but I was wondering um, when, you know, because uh, Faith, you said, until you speak the words out loud, you know, truly can't, healing can't truly begin. So did right. you actually have a face-to-face with your father to say, you sexually abused me and this is the impact it's had on me? I I didn't do it face-to-face. I did... I did send him a letter, mm-hmm. and it, it confronted him. Um, partly I didn't do it face-to-face because I knew he would minimize and he would he would do a lot of victim blaming, and yeah. I, didn't want, I didn't want to give him that opportunity to say that to my face um, because I knew I was emotionally not... And I knew what he was going to say was not accurate. Um, right. He did respond in a in a letter, um, but since that since that time, I hadn't I didn't speak to him after that, um, just because he was he was so toxic for me mm-hmm. that I mm-hmm. I couldn't. Um, for my emotional well-being, I, I needed to distance myself. And, and he was, like most offenders, he was extremely manipulative. So, mm-hmm. you know, he would be manipulating the, the rest of the family. He'd be calling, making phone calls to some of the people from our church. And he resigned immediately from our church. Um, he never attended again. Um but two weeks after he resigned from our church for abusing his son's foster daughter, he's in another church singing in the choir. Mm. So, I mean, there's just no conscience there, no shame. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. But, but, yeah, he just was not safe. But uh, back to Faith writing a letter. Now, he did acknowledge that what she said in the letter was true, but mm. then he would turn to others and say, no, he didn't do it. But, but back to the point of sharing your story is the beginning of your healing journey. And there are different ways to share your story. People can write it down, and and you don't have to deliver it. In other words, you can write it down and send it to your abuser. You can just write it down. You can tell someone, uh, Penelope, you were talking about someone you completely trusted. And, and man, it's so sad because so many survivors don't have somebody. Yeah. That they can trust. But so sometimes just writing it down, um, even if you never send it, uh, can be why some people use poems. Another thing, it's nonverbal, but a lot of abuse survivors will use art. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, a lot of the art can be very dark because it's, it's, it's what's hap- it's a reflection of how they feel inside 
And so a lot of times you see art that involves skeletons and, you know, for for Christians, you know, you look at it and think, well, that seems really dark, but yet that's the reality of a lot of people inside. So you can use art, you can use poetry, you can write your story out. There's lots of ways. But this is one of the mistakes the church is making when the church does this forgive and forget thing. Well, what we're trying to do or what the church is trying to do is shut victims down because we don't we don't want the mess of the story. We don't want to have to deal with the mess. So we do the forgive and forget, let's just everybody move on. Um, and we've seen so many cases like that. And what we're doing is we're, we're in a sense, forcing the victim to stay imprisoned in a cell or a cocoon for the rest of their life because we are uncomfortable with letting them speak about what happened to them. Mm-hmm. And, and, and forgiving, forgiveness is part of the healing process yes. because when you forgive somebody, it, it sets you free. But I think um, the understanding of what forgiveness is is, is kind of skewed um, because people think that forgiveness is actually going to your offender and saying, I forgive you, and you don't even have to. You can forgive somebody without being a face-to-face. Still hold them accountable. You can, you can still hold them accountable. They can still face consequences of their actions. And forgiveness is not saying it's okay. Yeah. Right. And it's not never having to talk about it again. Um, it's part of it's part of my story. It's part of what made me who I am and how it's impacted me and how I am able to relate to other survivors so that they know, you know, I really understand what they're go- what they've gone through to some degree because I've gone through similar things. But um, forgiveness doesn't mean that you can never talk about it again. Right. Um, it doesn't mean that that you have to have that you have to restore that relationship that's that's harmful. And and to put when you put forgive and forget together again, that's the that's the victim blaming and it's it's revictimization because you know when when a victim experiences triggers. Triggers are something completely out of the control of the victim. Something happens and the victim is triggered. And it could be a year later, it could be 10 years later, it could be 40 years after the abuse, and you experience a trigger. Well, a trigger it involves memory of something. And so to say that you can forgive and forget further harms the victim because then every time they have a trigger, then the victim is like, okay, so I'm guilty, I'm not doing something right, and it just further harms them, it further pushes them down and doesn't allow them to find healing. Right. Right, and I, you know, I really appreciate the fact that you're bringing up forgiveness, and I always call it a hot topic on NASCA because there are a lot of opinions about forgiveness. Um, But I think for forgiveness, there's a toll you know, forgiveness has does have a toll, um, at least in my case. But you know, there's a sacrifice involved. But um, I do agree that that you can forgive um, and and still hold the perpetrator accountable. 
And for me, you know, speaking the truth is part of forgiveness because I'm naming what I'm forgiving. Um, right. And I think this, it's important to name that. Um, and uh, and um, I don't know about your father, but my father, I know that he suffered and he was a victim as well. Um, and so part of breaking the silence and part of forgiveness and part of naming the truth is to ensure um, because I'm a loving daughter and because you're a loving daughter and a loving son-in-law that um, we don't forget what happened, you know, and we make sure that we uh, speak the truth and we advocate for survivors and we advocate for the cycle to to be um, interrupted um, so that it doesn't happen again um, because we, it's an ultimate suffering. So anyway, I know, I know this is what you do, but I appreciate you bringing it up because um, I feel that forgiveness sometimes is a topic that um, we skirt around or it's like I say, it's a hot topic. And I think um, um, that forgiveness is, um, you know, it is for the victim. Um, right. It does set you free. And I, I appreciate you saying that. I'm just wondering too, Faith, I had one more question. I know Kim wants to get to Philip, but you know, I was curious and I, and I, and I know, and I, and I acknowledge respect that both of your parents are deceased. Um, and I know that you had mentioned that your mother was a victim of verbal abuse or emotional abuse by your father. But, you know, I, um, I, I'm wondering, was your mother aware when your father was sexually abusing you um, in your home? I, in the beginning, I don't think that she was. But in the end, she actually caught him in the act um, oh, when wow. I was 18. And um, she asked me, well, what do you want me to do? And I said, I just want it to stop. And I was 18 years old, and it's like, do, I don't, you know, I'm I'm the kid here. Don't ask me what to do. Um, it's such, it's a, it's such a complex issue um, when, when there's abuse in the family, and she didn't know what to do. I didn't know what to do. And it did stop at that point, but I, because the next time he tried something, I said no, and he stopped. Um, and I, I don't, there's so many things that are so confusing but I do think that my mom was trying to help me. She didn't know what to do either mm-hmm. um, at that mm-hmm. point. You know, I think that that goes back to um, if if in our churches, and we do, and most churches do the opposite, but if churches would talk about childhood sexual abuse and domestic violence and stress, you know, I think God's heart is that he wants the vulnerable to be safe. We can find it over and over in his word. They need to be safe. And he talks about the afflicted, and he talks about justice for the poor, the fatherless, the afflicted. And if churches were teaching God's word like we should be when it comes to abuse, and that that a mom can leave an abusive marriage, that a mom can take her children to safety and should take their children to safety. And um, we can make a solid biblical case for that. People like Faith's mom, for generations have been taught, 
you have to stay in that marriage no matter what. And what's happening to the children and to many wives is it's no different than the child sacrifices in the Old Testament where they're burning the children to idols. And we've got professing Christians in in so many cases sexually abusing their their daughters, their nieces, and 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 the boys too are getting sexually abused. Um, and if it was being spoken about from the pulpit like it should be, uh, I think that again the number one thing the church could do to help prevent abuse is educate everybody in the congregation. And I think too provide safe places for these women and children that they can get help. And um, because those places are few and far between right now, at least in where we live in the rural communities, it's hard to find safe places for a mother with children to go to. And um, if churches really wanted to, they could help support or or have their church, you know, build up one of these or two of these places that are safe for women and children in, in abusive and not safe um, homes. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and perhaps also um, the more safe places and the more awareness and the more conversations, um, you know, perhaps the opportunities will diminish a little more for these crimes to take place because our eyes are open. Yeah. Right. Yeah, and it's and it's not easy for a a wife to leave um and it may not be safe. We have to you know, everybody's situation is different, but a lot of times when there's abuse in a if there's domestic violence, it can be the most um, the most dangerous time is when they decide to leave. A lot of times, the the abuser gets more um, more violent um, during that time because he's losing control, or he or she is losing control because there are women abusers as well yes. as men abusers. Um, so yeah, it. It's not a one, two, three. It's not, there are not any quick and easy answers in abuse situations. That, and that's what makes it so difficult. Yeah, that's for sure. Absolutely. And I thank you so much for answering my question, Faith, because I know it's a difficult one um, regarding your mother, and I, I do appreciate that. I think... Um, I just think understanding, sometimes I have, you know, understanding, at least for me, um, about why something happened. Um, and sometimes we don't get answers, but sometimes we do help me to have compassion for myself. Mm-hmm. And um, so thank you for, for answering my question. And um, You're welcome. And thank you, Kim. Oh, yeah. Thank you, Penelope. And, um, why don't we bring Philip on real quick and see if he had anything that he wanted to ask or add or 
Hey, Philip, are you? You're on now. Welcome. Hello, guys. Do you have um, anything? I don't have anything to say yet. Don't have anything. Okay. I think it's good to have you on. Good to hear your face. Thanks. Um, the other thing I was thinking about when Penelope and and Dale and Faith are all talking, I I was also thinking about those the stigma of still the emotional and all of you know that abuse that goes on. The the physical abuse you know that you can see is still so much easier to justify leaving where I think a lot of times that emotional abuse keeps you tight even tighter, you know, and so that is something that we need to really talk about too. Yeah. Yes. And there's a, there's a relatively recent term called coercive control and it's where, and again, I know it's not always the husband that's the abuser, but often that's the case. So you may have a husband who is very controlling, dominating, manipulating. He may not sexually abuse his wife. He may not beat his wife, but he controls his wife, and he can use, you know, money and threats, and, um, you know, there's a, a long list of things verbal abuse, emotional abuse, and and we have to recognize that is part of domestic violence. It's it's a you are dehumanizing your wife, you're dehumanizing your children when you do this and and that is violence against the soul of the person. And the other thing is even though there's a fairly long list of types of abuse we talk about spiritual, physical, sexual, emotional. Um, but all abuse does impact us physically. It may not be on the outside physically, but all abuse impacts our body in, in a whole um, damaging way. It's like a whole network inside of our body. Uh, it is harmful, not just to the mind, but it impacts our 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 body everywhere. Matter of fact, there's a fascinating verse in Proverbs that says, pleasant words are sweetness to the soul and health to the bone, which is interesting. So pleasant words not only are sweetness to the soul, but they're actually health to the bone. So at the very core of our physical being, so then you reverse that, you there's another verse in Proverbs that says that the power of death and life are in the tongue. James chapter 3 talks about the tongue is a, a, a world of evil, a deadly poison, um, and um, causes much damage. And so verbal abuse impacts us, and we've got a biblical, you know, we've got a biblical foundation for that. So, like you're saying, you don't, the physical you see, you see the bruises, you see the harm, and so you might be more likely to step in and say you need to go to safety. But if, if the wife comes to the pastor and says he's emotionally abusive to me, and the pastor just says read your Bible more, pray more, be more submissive, um, all of that just makes it worse. It doesn't make it better. And because for an abuser... Your acquiescence, 
for the abuser only only encourages more abuse. They never ease up. Uh, they they it's always worse. And so we need to start recognizing abuse for what it is, even the coercive control, and be be prepared to to tell the battered wife, you you know, you do have options. God doesn't expect you to stay in abusive marriage. Yes, God, if you go back to Malachi, God hates the putting away, but you read it in its context. He hates the violence of what the husband is doing by putting away his wife, and the word violence is used there. And the question is not does God hate divorce. Marriage is supposed to be beautiful. Marriage is supposed to be something that's wonderful and it's supposed to be a beautiful partnership for both the husband and the wife. God does hate it when there's abuse in the marriage and there's brokenness and and the marriage falls apart. But the question is, where does God lay the blame? God doesn't lay the blame at the battered wife who has to leave to save herself or save her children. God lays the blame at the feet of the one who's abusive. And that's the part we're missing on this. And we have to be prepared to give permission to the wife to say, you know, leaving is an option and it's something, you know, we can't tell her you have to leave. She's got to make that decision to, you know, safety for her, safety for her children. But we need to be prepared to say this is a biblical option because God does care about you. Yeah, and that, you know, also people need to start realizing that as well, that are in the safe homes, you know, make make it available to everybody who is going through trauma. And then that's going to also be, you know, part of that is believing them because when you're talking about the coercive control, nobody, you know, we can't see it. So, um, yeah. Yeah, and I think um, I think too another thing that's important to point out along with that, you know, Jesus talked about, you know, beware of the false prophets for they come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. The and, and Jude warns us that, that certain men have crept in unnoticed in meaning crept into the church using the grace of God as a license for immorality. The church is a soft target and offenders come in, but they don't come in looking like offenders. They come in looking like sheep. The only one that sees the wolf are the are the prey. So everybody else in the congregation sees this nice man who does great things. He might be the preacher. He might be the youth leader. He might be one of the, the people, it, the, the men. He might be a woman uh, sitting in a pew. Um, who does so much for the church, and here they are sexually abusing. You know, they may you may have a church of 500 people. They may be abusing three or four, and every, the vast majority see a, a wonderful, quote, Christian sheep, but the victims are the ones that see the wolf. Did we lose you? No, nope, we're here. Oh, oh, there you are. Okay. <laughs> Yeah. yeah I no, and, and then, oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah. No, and then people, you know, there's that 95%. So the three 
or four that you're talking about that have been abused are over here going, I can't say anything. Everybody loves this person. It must be something I'm doing or, you know. So, yeah, we and we know that as victims, we, we blame ourselves. There must have been something yeah. that I did. And, um, mm-hmm. and I think, for me, I just see how it has always made me feel like, you know, I'm not good enough. And I think we hear that a lot as well from victims. Yeah. Even when we start healing it, there's still this underlining we're not good enough. And I, I feel that creeping up periodically, you know, and it's just something that I think we do have to deal with. And, um, right. yeah. So. Yeah. yeah, I was going to go point out that verse in, in Proverbs where it talks about death and life from the power of the tongue. So the damage, exactly what you're talking about, the victim feels worthless or they're not good enough. So what, one of the, the remedies, one of the healing things that we can do as believers or as people is is we need to speak life into abuse survivors. We tell them that God does love them, that that they are special, they are worthy, and God cares for them. Another thing that we need to stress over and over is abuse is never the fault of the victim. It is never the fault of the victim. It is always God lays the blame at the feet of the offender. So we can speak life, and I think, you know, we kind of we can reverse the damage, but we have to do it over and over and over again. Yeah, isn't it like for every one bad thing you say, you're supposed to speak ten nice things. Yes, and yes. you know that's that's something you would really have to concentrate on to to do. So I mean, having that in your mind. It's easier to just not speak that one bad word. <laughs> My mind, that's easy to speak. <laughs> but, yeah. Um, so you guys, you had mentioned a little while ago, Dale, I think, that um, your book, Tear Down the Wall of Silence, is that new? Is that different from Speaking the Truth in Love? I mean, so speaking, I, actually, that's a that's an error on my part in in the bio. So the oh. the book is tear, tear down this wall of silence. Not so speaking truth and love is the name of our ministry, and okay. and we are a five hundred one c three. So it's speaking truth and love, but the book is tear down this wall of silence. And I wrote it the the initial book I wrote back in two thousand fourteen, and then. Um, a few years later, Re- Rebecca Davis um, uh, read the book, and, and she's a writer and an editor, and uh, she wanted to go ahead and rearrange the book, edit the book. Um, and when I wrote it initially, the title was just Tear Down This Wall. So one of the things she wanted to do is tear down this wall of silence, which explains the book better. She, she really took the book to a more professional level, and... Um, so it's Tear Down This Wall of Silence. People can get it on, on Amazon. Um, but um, we get a lot of good reviews on it. Um, but it's one of those things you wish. We never really did a book launch. So it's there. Um, you know, some people buy it on Amazon. 
but I'm hoping my you know our prayer is that it actually it, there's there's something in the book for both abuse survivors as well as church leaders. There's there's something in there I would say for everybody um, in the book, and and a, a lot of Faith's story is woven throughout the book, and I do refer to Faith's dad um, from time to time throughout the book. So there's quite a bit of our stories in there. Something else that's really interesting. Now this is this is very recent for us. We we've never had an office. Our office has just been out of our home. And there's a local church about ten miles from our house that um, it just it closed down back in June, and and the folks donated the building, the facility to our ministry. Well, what's interesting, so we have possession of the building now. We're in the process of, of re, you know, painting, remodeling, doing some things inside to get it set up for our ministry and doing some podcasting. But what's really interesting <coughs> is that back in the early 70s, Face Dad actually pastored that church for two years. And it was during the time she was being a. <coughs> so God's given us a chance to kind of redeem that that building and use it as a as a training center to help prevent abuse and combat abuse. So it's you know that's just been a huge answer to prayer that that uh, God's provided that for us. Oh, that is what a what a blessing. Yeah, that's awesome. You can do a lot more things if you have a facility that you can just open up anytime you need to. So that's amazing. Yes. I'm so happy. I'm glad for you guys. I'm happy for you guys. <laughs> I'm glad. Yeah. You'll have to let us know how it's coming and send us pictures and stuff once in a while. <laughs> Keep us updated. So we've been taking – yeah, what we're going to do – so we our oldest son um, does a lot. He's, he's an artist and musician. He does a lot with video. So what we're going to do is we've gotten a ton of pictures and a ton of video before we started doing anything over there. So we're going to put together a little video intro, and um, Faith's going to share some of her story, and, and we're going to tell a bit of that story that I just shared about her dad, you know, pastoring that church and, um, you know, what God's doing with the building now. And uh, so we will have something uh, together. So yes, I'll I'll send that when we get that put together. Yeah, send it to me. Because I know you're not on Facebook, correct? You're just on Instagram. Yeah, I'm not on Facebook anymore. That was like the advocacy world on Facebook. It's like you feel like you're walking through a minefield, and everything can go mm-hmm. just fine. But it's like every two or three years, it's like a bloodbath on there. Which is a real shame because I think, you know, advocates could make so much more headway, but it's like inevitable you get conflict and then, you know, people are going back and forth. And I, so I just, I just got off of Facebook entirely. Um, we're hoping when, when we get set up in our offices uh, over at this new facility, we want to do podcasting. And when we do that, the face still on on Facebook, and our our page is technically still on Facebook, but we haven't done anything with it. But once we do 
get some podcasting going, we will be doing more on the social media platforms. Uh, well, we'll look forward to that. But, yeah, if you get that together, um, some pictures together of what you're doing and want me to share it, then on NASCAR's page I'd be happy to do that. So just let me know. I also, I don't know if I told you this or if you, well, no, you saw that we were going to try and do more Zoom um, meetings yeah. as well for NASCA. And so if you guys ever want to come on, you know, and do a presentation or something on Zoom, I'd be happy to, to get that set up for you as well. So you guys just let me know because it yeah. sounds like you have some exciting things coming up. That's <laughs> good, yeah. I, I think that that will add a whole other dimension for NASCA. That's That's good. Yeah, we just have to get people on there. <laughs> Not everybody's willing to quite quite go there yet. And I don't know if you have spent any time on Blog Talk, but um, it's a little bit old-fashioned, so it doesn't connect to these other platforms. And and so yeah, we need to get we need to get Blog Talk up to date a little bit <laughs> so we can connect everything. Um, I'm surprised they haven't. Yeah, I think okay. people will respond. So, to it. Yeah, I I think so too. Video is where everybody is. I mean, they just are these days from COVID and yeah. all that. It's a lot more. I can do a lot more, even with you know my nonprofit that I work with on Zoom since the whole COVID thing happened. Yeah, exactly. So um, uh. so it'll be neat. So will you guys? Do do you think you will do more teaching on your podcast, or are you thinking about having people just come on and, and tell their stories? Or are you just still kind of working that out? It'll be a little bit of both, I think. Yeah, I think it'll be both. Um, I'm going to start one of the podcasts. We're going to actually do several different podcasts. Um, one of the ones I'm going to be working on is called Conversations of Hope, where I will interview different people and their stories, different aspects of their story, and how how they have been healing or where they are on their healing journey, um, just how people responded that were good, what was helpful, what was hurtful, those types of things, um, and so I'll be interviewing different people with different stories and trauma and how they've overcome and how they're still working through the different things. So I think that'll that'll meet a lot of people's needs because it'll bring um, people in that have similar stories so people can relate. Oh, wow, that happened to me, you know, just from hearing other people's stories. And conversation is so much more interesting than just one person teaching. So just the your yeah. format that you guys have here where you've got a conversation going, people can easily listen in and feel like a part of the conversation where if you just have one person teaching, you can have really good information, but it, it's not always easy to, to feel like you're a part of it. And how long are your classes that you normally do when you go into a church? Or so most of our presentations would be either between 45 and, and uh, forty-five minutes and an hour long. 
we usually try to put a, a question and answer time at the end. Um, but if we get in church on a Sunday morning, you're looking at a, like a 30-minute message in most cases. Um, so we can we can adapt to whatever. Our three primary, so if the church has us come in um, and do a seminar, the three primary presentations we'll do is understanding abuse, responding to abuse, and healing from abuse. And um, we can do that on a, like a Sunday morning service, or Sunday school, Sunday morning service, and then, you know, if the church does a lunch, we can do an afternoon service, or we can do it on a Saturday. Um, we've got a lot more presentations than that, but those are probably three of the common ones. At a Sunday morning message, a lot of times I'll do what does God say about abuse, and I'll talk about verbal abuse, child abuse, and marital abuse. Um, it, it's a pretty wide variety, and, and we try to adapt to whatever the church or the or the group or organization. A lot of times it's a small group. Uh, we'll adapt to whatever the need is. Nice. Yeah, and you guys will go pretty much anywhere. I know you've also been in Colorado Springs before a few times. And so anybody who, you know, wants to bring your curriculum to their church, we could have them get in touch with you because I know it's very much needed. And I know that a lot of times, um, you know, the curriculum that I use isn't specifically a Christian curriculum. And I do get that question a lot of times, you know you know, as a Christian curriculum, and, and I have given people your name before. I don't know if it ever follows through or not, but, um, but yeah, there is a difference. People, and I can kind of adapt Darkness to Light as well to, you know, being in more right. of a church setting, but, um, but people sometimes are just really adamant about that. And so, yeah, yeah, it's always good to have all those other resources and stuff, too. Yeah, definitely. So, yeah, we'd love to get to Colorado. Yeah. Stop into these churches out here. Yeah. Get them going. But um, I know I have found, and I think I've told you the business as well, I seem to have a lot easier time getting into preschool. So it seems like, you know, the staff need that information as well. And they're not necessarily yeah. getting that from any other place. So I spend a lot of time in preschools. And then there are times that I can come back and then do a class for the parents, which is what I would love to do. <laughs> I love doing that. Yes. Getting everybody yeah, kind of educated. Exactly. Right. Yep, that's great. So, yeah. So um, we are down to like the last 10 minutes of the show. It's gone so fast. <laughs> so what else do you all want to tell us um, before we so, close out tonight? I would say, so if people want to contact us, our, our ministry line is 607-359-4366. Uh, if they want to email us, um, it's it's D F Ingram. Our last name is I N G R A H A M. D F Ingram at speakingtruthandlove.org. dot org. 
They can email us. They can call, leave a message. Um, they, you know, they can go online or con our, our website, speakingtruthlove.org, and uh, there's a link there. They can uh, email us or leave us a message. And you know, we would we would love to to travel. We'll speak to a small group. There's no group too small, um, and uh, we'll go wherever God gives us an open door. Thank you for that. Thank you for your heart, both of you. And, um, and, you know, Dale, especially because you are that rock for your wife, and I think so many people need to see that, that, you know, you can be there for that person. It doesn't have to be something that you sit on the sidelines and just go, I don't know anything about it. I'm just, you know, here. And um, to, to open up your heart and really dig a little bit deeper and find out what that looks like as a survivor and what that looks like to your partner or to your child even. And um, because I know I was going to say earlier that, um, you know, I don't know about you, Faith, but I I find like my um, my hard times kind of come and go. It's like you know, when you, I don't really expect it, I start to have issues and not realizing maybe exactly what is going on and then start to realize that it has something to do with, you know, maybe a trigger. And um, yeah. and I think that that's, the, for me, I, I noticed that more so now that I've started to notice it. Does that make sense? <laughs> yeah. Right, yeah. right, yeah. Yeah, you yeah. Know, the um, I know we don't have a lot of time left, but First Peter three seven is a verse. A lot of times it gets twisted around, but where where Peter talks about for the husbands to to consider his wife, it, giving honor unto her as unto the weaker vessel, and the idea of consider her means you get to know her. And and what we're talking about um, a husband of, of of a wife who's been abused. You know, part of it goes back to educating himself, but getting to know what's happened to her and understanding it. But what talks about giving honor to, what that giving honor means to give value to. And for most abuse survivors, they do feel worthless, like you were talking about. They feel without value. They feel, and they're often told, nobody will ever love you, nobody will ever believe you. So one of the roles of the husband in helping his wife to heal is to give value to her and and to let her know, you know, how special she is and that God does love her and that you love her. So so you're building her up and and you're helping her to heal. And when it talks about giving honor to her as under the weaker vessel, it, it that's not demeaning. What that means is she's she's fragile. She's she's highly valuable but easily broken and oftentimes whether it's the husband or church leaders or just people well-meaning christians we often further re-victimize the victim further harm the victim in our efforts to try to help them and so we need to learn how to help them well amen I think one of the biggest things is is 
being believed, you know, telling telling a victim, I believe you, when they share, when they trust you enough to share what they've gone through, for you to say, thank you for sharing that with me, I believe you, and it's not your fault. Um, those things are important for a, a survivor or a victim to hear because at least it, it helps them, it validates who they are and what they've been through, and and it helps them to know, you know, somebody believes me and somebody thinks I'm worth listening to. You know, they they feel, like Dale said, they feel worthless. That helps to give them val- feel valued again and validate their feelings and what they've gone through. And real quick, because we are down to four minutes, but um, how did you guys tell your kids? Were your kids adults by the time that they, they were, found out about you? They, it was in you 2006 when my dad abused my niece. That's when we told our kids because we knew we were going to be going through that. And so at that time, there was our, a couple in college. There were a couple in college, but our youngest was 11. So um, so they were 11 to 21 when we told them. So, and it, and it really changed their life. Um, they lost their grandparents that, that day. They, um, you know, their grandparents weren't who they thought that they were. And it did turn their world upside down. But we walked them through it and... You know, we still walk them through it. You know, there's still the impact of finding out that your mom was abused by someone that you thought was trustworthy. Yeah. And how do you think that their reaction and how they have come to accept or, you know, be there for you as as their mom and a survivor how has that played out then? Do you, do you feel that that has played out really well over the years? And I think, I think that they struggle, they really struggle with their connection with God. And, and one of the things, so many abuse survivors, you know, you, you've got the question, why, why didn't God stop the abuse or why does God allow abuse? And I, and I say in our conferences, as I try to answer that question, and you never can really fully answer it, but I think there's there's going to come a day when we stand before God, God is going to ask us as church leaders, he's going to say, why didn't you stop the abuse? You you think of all the parables where Jesus talked about the master goes into a far country and he, he leaves servants in charge. But he's the master, and he, he's gone into heaven. It's not, I mean, he it's not that he doesn't involve himself in our lives. He does. But he's left us in charge. He's given us guidance in his word. We're supposed to be protecting the vulnerable and the afflicted and the fatherless and the vulnerable. And uh, and so I think it, God does care about abuse, and he's left us here to help prevent abuse. Amen. And you guys are doing such an amazing job. and. 
know that you are a shining light to so many. Thank you for doing all that you do. Thank you. Thank you. Um, thank you for being on with me tonight, Penelope. Oh, thank you. And Philip as well. Always a pleasure to have you on too. It was good to be on tonight. So, um, yeah. um, one last time, Dale, tell your phone number because I, my pen wasn't working. I was trying to write it down real quick. <laughs> How people can get a hold of you. 607-359-4366. Or they can go to the website, speakingtruthandlove.org, and there's an email link there. They can send us an email. And then if you send us an email, I'll give you my cell phone number, and we can communicate that way as well. Well, thank you again for being on with us this evening, and and we are just honored to be on with you both. And and thank you. We feel the same way. It's always an honor. Yeah. Yeah. Keep us updated on what's going on. Okay. As we always say, You know, there are enough adults out there to keep all children safe in this world. So if you see something, please say something. Good night, everyone. Have a good evening. Good night.